0: From the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio,
1: this is In Black America. The easiest answer is that, you know, she's one of the most important writers and thinkers of the 20th century, and so her picture comes up in, you know, Black History Month, but we tend not to know a lot about her life. We see the movies, the play, you know. But we, And so I think it's always useful to look to the past and to to sort of see what visionaries of the past, how they approach doing work that had a serious impact on people, that help people imagine freedom, because we have to continue to do that work. So I guess that's part of it. But it's also, you know, the book was an occasion for me to think about, like, how communities create artists and thinkers, you know, Mm -hmm. and so writing about her and her interior life and her thinking, but also these people who shaped her and influenced her and the relationships. And I think nowadays we tend to be so kind of self-focused.
0: Dr. Moni Perry, the Hughes Rogers Professor of African-American Studies at Princeton University and author of Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, published by Beacon Press. In 1959, when A Raised in the Sun debuted on Broadway, Lorraine Hansberry became the first African-American woman to have a play produced on Broadway. The play depicted an African-American family's struggle on Chicago's South Side as it tried to move into a white neighborhood. Surprisingly, the play mirrors some of the circumstances Hansberry grew up under while living on Chicago's South Side. In the book, Looking for Lorraine Perry, Uncover the woman behind this iconic production. Hansberry, who died at the age of 34, was by all accounts ahead of her time. She was a feminist, a black nationalist, and a prolific and probing artist. I'm Johnny O. Henson Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, Looking for Lorraine, the radiant and radical life of Lorraine Hansberry, with Dr. Imani Perry, Part 2, In Black America.
1: It's such an honest portrait of black folks and our, our desires and our, our dreams and our frustrations and resilience. And, and it's not, it's not dre- that's not dressed up. You know, it, it's really honest and sincerely offered. And I think, you know, we have a lot of beautiful art, but there's something about the clarity of that play that, that makes it stand out you know, and the people, I mean, we, we know all those people now, you know, we, right. we know every character and th- we are the characters, characters too. Right, right. you right. know, and um. so I, I think that's what it is.
0: Unless you've been living under a rock for the past six decades, you know about A Raisin in the Sun, the Broadway production opened at the Ethel Barrymore Theater on Broadway in 1959. It was made more famous when the movie version was released a year later, starring Sidney Poitier as Walter Lee Young and Ruby Dee as his wife. Lorraine Hansberry was only 29 years old when the production opened. Hansberry Play is one of the most produced works by an African American playwright in this country. Dr. Imani Perry thought it was time to revisit this literary jewel that has been hidden in plain sight for decades. Although Hansberry's life was short, it was full of extraordinary experiences and achievements. She had an unflinching commitment to social justice, which brought her under FBI surveillance when she was barely in her 20s. Perry's book brought to life the backstage stories of this multidimensional artist and playwright. On today's program, we conclude our conversation with noted African-American studies scholar Dr. Amani Perry. The rain came from somewhat that we can say a privileged class of African Americans. Her parents were college educated.
1: They were. They were college educated. She. Her father was a real estate mogul. You know. Her mother was involved in um, local politics. All the. In. You know. People who I've talked to or you know had interviews with who grew up around her. You know. They were seen. Not. I mean. They were. They were middle class. But for for black folks in the depression they were rich, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they talked about that, you know, the the had money. So yeah. That's what she came from. But they lived in the but they lived on the south side and oftentimes lived in the same building as her father's tenants. So she wasn't separate from the larger black community, you know. She came of age right in the middle of it.
0: At some point Lorraine became compassionate about the conditions of, of, of African Americans during her time what mm-hmm. led her to that 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 point in her life
1: that's a great question I mean I think it's it, there are a couple of events that were really important mm-hmm. I think one is you know her her uncle um, William Leo Hansberry, who was a professor at Howard right you know found you know, really developed the field of African studies, he brought a lot of intellectuals and activists by their house, and that had an influence on her, you know, so sort of thinking about black politics more broadly. And of course, like, you know, the Chicago Defender, they're reading that, you know, all the time. And so, you know, there's like a whole kind of political world. And she had a mentor who lived downstairs at one point, who uh, was an activist, who's, um, Ray Hansborough, no relation, and mm-hmm. though they have a similar last name. But then, they, but personally, I, I think the most poignant event was when she was in elementary school and her parents gave her a white fur coat the fur for coat. Christmas.
0: Right, right.
1: And she goes to school in that fur coat in the Depression where other kids are hungry, mm-hmm. and, you know, and they beat her up. Right. And in that moment, she she talks about sharing their anger. Like she, she understood how awful it was. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to just focusing on feeling like, why'd that, you know, hurt, right? And she identified with the other kids in that moment. And I think that that was the moment really that kind of gave her her politics, gave her her commitments, where she could see outside of her own experience to the larger black community's experience.
0: As you say that, I'm I'm thinking about when she decided to attend the University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh-huh. which was uh, you know 180 from from yeah. where she grew up in, and, and having that experience with the coat mm-hmm. and having to go to Madison. I've been to Madison. I'm quite sure <laughs> you. Had, yeah. It's not a lot of stuff that black people can do in Madison, Wisconsin.
1: No. <laughs> No and it's it's and that and you know she integrated a dorm like they right. previous <laughs> black students had been forced to live off campus and you know her mother was like no we need and and they made her interview for that exactly. like for them to decide it was acceptable <laughs> to have a, a black young woman in the dorm so yeah it was totally different and one thing that I think is amazing about her is that she 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 struggled academically there she was mm-hmm. not really into school that much i mean that's right. just you know yeah. not into the, the academic part of school but she flourished in terms of the what Art. she did right. you know mm-hmm. she became an or a campus activist the president of the, the student progressive party you know she got into theater productions and so and she did you know uh, she, you know she talked about about race and racism there she didn't stay but I, i'm just I was really um impressed by how she sort of not just, you know, met the challenge of being there but became a leader amongst, you know, white students in 1948. Right. You know, it's really extraordinary.
0: I think uh, I think she found her her way. She became an artist, but becoming an artist also took her to becoming a proficient writer which she didn't really take real seriously at the beginning.
1: Yeah, you know, it's so, I, I she, be, yeah, but I think that's right. You know, she was, she started as a visual artist. Right. And, I, you know, I think, it, she never lost track of the visual. I mean, I think, part of what's so special about playwrights is they are paying attention to the words but they're also thinking about the visual like the performance mm-hmm. in front of you mm-hmm. and she did these I, I think she was she was very self critical about her own plays but i think she was really masterful at like putting together plays where you could see the motivation and the feelings of all the characters and identify with all of them. You could feel what they were feeling, even when they were at odds with each other. Yet she didn't, like, it It all felt very natural. Like, she, you, would, you didn't think, oh, that's not what a real person would say, right? So they would right. talk like people really talked, and yet you got a full sense of who they were. And I do think that helped. It helped that she was imagining scenes, you know, interactions, uh, not just sort of telling a story, but showing a story.
0: Who were some of the writers that had a profound... Impact on her as a writer?
1: Well, definitely Langston Hughes, Mm -hmm. Simone de Beauvoir, um, for playwright Sean O'Casey. Du Bois had an influence on her intellectually, and she studied his writing a lot. Um, And he, you know, was a mentor, really, you know, cared very deeply for her. And she does, you know, what's so funny, she doesn't talk about Gwendolyn Brooks, but I think Gwendolyn Brooks was absolutely an influence on her. So, I think in the way that she tried to depict life in Chicago and 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 Chicago kitchenette living. I just, you know, she didn't she never acknowledged it explicitly, but I just as someone who who loves and reads a lot of Gwendolyn Brooks, I just see her influence on Hansberry.
0: I found her interesting after the African Airlift her friendship with Malcolm X.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, she knew everybody, you know, and she and I, I think it's really important because so many people don't think of her as militant, but right. really she was as militant.
0: <laughs> yes, she was.
1: As as, uh, as Malcolm. And, and also the visual, because, you know, he talked bad about her about her being married to a white man, and then she, like, you know, fussed at him. Mm-hmm. And he apologized, and I have this visual in my mind, because, you know, she was this little <laughs> tiny woman, and Malcolm was, right. like, 6'3", and imposing. And, and I just imagine her, you know, <laughs> fussing at him, and he's like, okay, I'm sorry, Lorraine. You know, I just, it's, it's just such a sweet image. And I was so moved when I read about him showing up at her funeral, even though his own life was at risk. Right. I just wept, you know, at that you know that
0: do moment. you do you think that uh, her father's death in mexico had a impact on her when she wrote a raised in the sun
1: i do i think um i think one the impact on her was that it's sort of a it's it's complicated i think on the one hand it made her more tender to her father's position like mm-hmm. You know, even though she didn't see things the same way, like he was very much into, you know, we got to fight the battle in the courts and we have to be respectable. You know, he was a very, you know, real patriot, like straight and narrow guy. And she was talking about, you know, we should run to the hills with guns. You know, they were very different. But I think she saw his life and she saw how brilliant he was and how hard he worked and that at the end of his life, he was so frustrated by American racism, he was like, we're just going to go to Mexico. We're leaving this place. And I think that, I mean, that really shaped her, you know, the feeling that like, you know, he had done everything according to white America, the right way for getting equality. And he just saw it as intractable, you know, the country. So I think that had an impact on her. And I think it opened her up to really thinking about, even though she had very strong convictions, kind of being sensitive to all the different ways that black people were trying to struggle, you know, even if they weren't the same as her own. I found
0: it interesting this week when they had just did a report on the devaluation of black home ownership mm-hmm. and her dad, a lot of people don't know was the reason why the restrictive covenants was were, were, were stricken.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's, it, it was, you know, yeah. I mean, Hensbury v. Lee, this case that her dad brought when he purchased a home in a neighborhood that was supposed to be restricted for white folks, the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they, you know, ultimately were able to occupy the home. And, you know, that history – and the thing is that, you know, raising the son is based on that history, in right. part, and part of her frustration – with the way people saw the play where well, she was mm. like at the end, when they move into the house, that's not a happy ending exactly. because the white folks are going to be, you know, so violent. You know, she talks mm-hmm. about being spat on right. and having objects thrown. She almost was killed by a rock thrown through their the window, window as a little girl. Right. And so, you know, I think it's really important now to understand how all of the housing history of housing discrimination is at the center of racial inequality and black homes were deva- have been devalued because of the history of federal policy. Like, it wasn't something that just happened. Right. They made our homes worth less, you know. And she saw the importance of that. And I think it's really important. You know, you think about it was 1959 when it was showed up on Broadway. Right. This, you know, it's in the midst of the <laughs> Civil Rights Movement. And she was even then drawing attention to, okay, the issue is not just, you know, the segregation signs. <laughs> You know, it's also all these other things, you know, where we can live, where you know, people pushing us out, responding by all those kinds of things. And history has borne that out, you know.
0: Little people don't know, well some do, but a song Nina Simone wrote was a direct reflection of her love for Lorraine Hansberry.
1: Yeah. And you know, they were such they were such good friends and Nina Simone credited Lorraine Hansberry for for getting her in the movement like mm-hmm. she was like you know and she told told this story about how you know she opened in Carnegie Hall and everybody was calling to congratulate her but Lorraine called and said okay well now what are you going to do for the movement <laughs> right that was the response <laughs> right. not congrats. and it, that changed her life obviously and and she talked about she described Lorraine in many ways as like a teacher who brought you know encouraged her to read certain things and talk about ideas, but I I think it went both ways. And it was actually an interview that one of Malcolm X's daughters, Atala Shabazz, did that made me start to really think about this. And she said, you know, everybody always talks about how Lorraine taught Nina, but Nina was brilliant and she taught her as well. And I started to think about the way, you know, Nina Simone influenced Lorraine as an artist too, you know, because she was such a master of bringing different ideas together, like composing something that had all these different kind of influences. And I think you can see that in Lorraine Hansberry's work after they became friends. So yeah, that, that relationship was so close. And Nina Simone was was devastated by her death and then by Malcolm X's death three weeks later, you know, and that was really the beginning of some of her psychiatric challenges was that period of death, you know.
0: Right. In May, 63, Lorraine and some other black activists had a sit down with the attorney general, Robert Kennedy, and that didn't go over too well.
1: No, (laughs) it didn't go too well. (laughs) You know, because Robert F. Kennedy thought that he was going to call together these famous black people and they would tell black people in my hometown of Birmingham to calm down and stop all their protesting and Mm -hmm. go slow. And, you know, and everybody responded to that you know that that position negatively you know Lena Horne was like you crazy if you think we're going to go tell black people not to protest and you know and Lorraine said the black people in Birmingham speak for us but she was particularly angry that one of the people who came to the meeting who was an organizer from Core Jerome Smith who had been you know violently beaten in uh, in Mississippi and 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 had You know, really been in the throes of the struggle when Robert F. Kennedy tried to kind of dismiss and ignore him. And she was like, no, 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 that's the person you need to listen to. You know, she really rejected this idea that you only listen to the fancy Negroes, right? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And that became, you know, the basis for her to really kind of go in on RFK and to say, we want a moral commitment and support of civil rights from the Kennedy administration.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O. Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio, and we're speaking with Dr. Imani Perry, the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University and author of Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry. Ms. Hansberry was ahead of her time in in a lot of different areas. Tell us about those areas.
1: Yeah, I mean, so one is that she saw herself as a feminist. She, you know, she ident- what's really interesting is like sort of everybody thinks about you know James Baldwin and she were such good friends and people think of James Baldwin as a gay writer. What's interesting is that although he had, you know, he had relationships with men, he didn't ever really accept the label. Hansberry actually talked about herself as being a lesbian and trying to think through what that meant politically even though she wasn't out because you know it wasn't a, you know it wasn't a safe time to be out but she was talking about issues of sexuality she was talking about issues of gender she was also thinking a lot about uh, you know anti-colonialist movements you know the future of Africa so she almost like she was in the 50s in some ways where Organizations like the Black Panther Party were in the late 60s and 70s Mm -hmm. on a lot of issues. And I think so she was ahead of her time. But a lot of that had to do with the influence of people like Paul Robeson and and W.E.B. Du Bois and Langston Hughes, who were such, you know, sophisticated political thinkers. They, They thought about things internationally. You know, they were, you know, they really had these big political imaginations. So it's almost like she was a bridge between an older and younger generation on so many issues.
0: A couple of more questions, Dr. Perry. Why is significant, in your opinion, that we celebrate Lorraine Hansberry?
1: Well, I, I guess I, I think, I mean, I think the, 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 the easiest answer is that, you know, she's one of the most important writers and thinkers of the 20th century. And so her picture comes out uh, up in, you know, Black History Month, but we tend not to know a lot about her life. Mm-hmm. You know, we we see the movies, the play, whatever, you know, but we, and so I think it it's always useful to look to the past and to, to sort of see what visionaries of the past, how they approach doing work that had a serious impact on people, that help people imagine freedom, because we have to continue to do that work. So I guess that's part of it, but... It's also, you know, the book was an occasion for me to think about like how communities create artists and thinkers, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, writing about her and her interior life and her thinking, but also these people who shaped her and influenced her and the relationships. And I think nowadays we tend to be so kind of self focused and so like everybody holds things close to their chest and they're competing (laughs) with each other. But we have, you know, you don't get to that kind of work unless you're in community unless you're in conversation unless you learn from other people and so i guess i want that to be the lesson of her life too
0: i understand were there any aha moments when you were doing
1: the research that's such an interesting question i mean i had in some ways there were there were so so many of them and you know like it and they they came about you know so sometimes there like there would be there were also there were these fascinating moments like you know where like I I'm learning about her being engaged with to a uh, a black man in Harlem before marrying Robert Nemiroff right right mm-hmm. and that's you know that story was really interesting to think about how her life unfolded in a way nobody had talked about. You're or, talking about Rosie. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Rosie. And how, you know, he he was gorgeous and he was an activist and he was like this super charismatic person and it gave me an insight into her. She was so, you know, she loved beauty and elegance and charisma you know, the way Baldwin had written about her, he was like, oh, she was so committed to the struggle. She didn't care about fame. And then I was in her papers and actually she did, you know, Mm -hmm. she, Mm -hmm. she wanted to be famous. (laughs) She liked the limelight. You know, she liked being listened to. I mean, not more than she was committed to ideas, but, and then I, you know, I had this moment when it was very emotional for me to go to the place where she, where she spent her last days, you know, Mm -hmm. to go to her home in upstate New York and to go to her grave site and to think about, you know, the challenges for her of trying to write through her physical illness and trying to do work that was meaningful for the movement and the combination between wanting to be out there and her body shutting down and the the kind of private space she needed to write and how she sort of struggled with all of that. It was I, it was an aha moment for me because I just, you know, I I think for me personally because I think a lot about as someone who has chronic diseases like how do you balance, mm-hmm. you know, the limitations of your body? But it's also that's just such a human thing. You know, we all are working through constraint and difficulty and hardship and we're trying to do something meaningful and we're always limited or most of us anyway. And I, you know, and that for me, that made me feel like this is some of this stuff is universal and we all can learn from it, you know? Right. And that was an aha moment. Like it wasn't, she's, she was very special, but she's also just human in a way that we're all human. You know, um, when you
0: teach your students in class, are mm-hmm. you trying to convey to them the, the passion in which I can hear from your voice, about literature and and learning mm. i would say the the, the backstories of these individuals who have have, have profoundly affected uh, what we read and and learn about society
1: i do you know because i always want you know students you know part of the work is you know learning how to make an argument learning how to do research learning how to write a paper but i also think part of the work of education is learning how to live a meaningful life. And part of the way you do that is to look at examples of lives lived, right? And so right. I always try to make space for them to have like personal reckonings or transformations in the midst of learning information, you know, or, or research. And realize that they're, whole, you know, as one of the weird things about colleges and universities is that in the classroom, we so often act like students aren't whole people, you know, <laughs> yeah. but but they are, you know, they're living, breathing, complicated people. And we're all there trying to pursue knowledge together. And I want I, so I, I like for the classroom to be honest about that, you know, to and to be caring about that. You now, that said, you know, I don't let my classroom. You know, sometimes students just want to tell all their business and right. <laughs> go on and right. so you don't do that. But, you know, the emotional and the intellectual do have to work together, I think, for effective learning.
0: Final question, Dr. Perry. What do you think made A Raisin in the Sun such a powerful and an endearing play?
1: I think that its power comes, in, comes from its truth, okay. you know. I mean, there's just not—it's such an honest portrait of black folks and our— desires and our, our dreams and our frustrations and resilience. And, and it's not, it's not that's not dressed up, you know, it's really honest and sincerely offered. And I think, you know, we have a lot of beautiful art, but there's something about the clarity of that play that, that makes it stand out, you know, Uh, and the people, I mean, we, we know all those people now, you know, we, we know every character. And we are the characters, yeah, too, right, right, you right. know? And um, so I, I think that's what it is, you know?
0: Any final comments, Dr. Perry?
1: Oh, I just would say thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, I I just think it's, it's really special that we still have, you know, and I know... We don't have as as many spaces as we used to, but we have, that we have spaces to have real conversations about, you know, our art and our work and our politics and our history and all of that. So I appreciate you having me on, but I also just appreciate the work you do generally. So thank you.
0: Dr. Amani Perry, the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University and author of Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hasbury. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at kut.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny L. Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712.
1: This has been a production of KUT Radio.